In 1 Chronicles 12, verse 22, the writer writes, For from day to day men came to David to help him, until there was a great army, like an army of God. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for the opportunity to stand before my brothers and sisters, Father God, uh, my family, Father, and to be able to, to share from the Scriptures, Father God. I pray, Lord, for those who are gathered here tonight, Father, they've come, God, um, out of responsibility and out of love for the body and obedience to Your Word, Father God. But I also pray, God, they've come seeking blessing. And I pray, Father God, that blessing will be delivered. Not by the uh, eloquence of my words, Father God, or their intelligence, but by the power of Your Holy Spirit, the only ability to add or detract in all of this world, Father God, is Your ability to do so. So I pray, Father God, for that now. I pray, God, that You will shove me to the side, God. Cover me with the cross, Father, completely, so that I am unseen, but Your message is seen. I pray, Father God, for the willingness, the suitability, Father God, the, the, uh, the moral qualification, Father God, and the... The, uh, the desperation of this people today, Father God. That's what I pray for. God, I pray for the revolution that must come, that has to come, Father God, from tiny little churches like this where people simply have had enough and they are committed enough, Father God, and they are ready, God, to, to give what, what, uh, what Lincoln called the last full measure of devotion, Father God. I pray for that now. I pray, Father God, that as we come and we settle in upon this passage, Father God, in bigger, broader things, Father, uh, God, uh, nation-changing things. It's so funny to talk about them in, in a small place, Father God, but I know that, that everything big has small beginnings, Father. So I praise You now, Father, and I ask You, please, God, to guide our hearts and our minds as we focus on Christ, as we focus on, on the blood and the Word and the cross and everything, Father God, and we focus on, those, on the application of that to our lives. I pray now, Father God, for divine willingness and a divine purpose to come upon each and every one of us, Lord. We praise You now, Lord, in the name of Christ, I pray, Father. Amen. Okay, just in a little way of, uh, of announcements before we get started, um, thank you everyone for your support and encouragement for our baccalaureate today. It was fantastic as it always is. Brother Kyle, it's a challenge, isn't it? It's a great challenge. We've been talking about the challenge uh, this afternoon of delivering that, that baccalaureate sermon. It is it's a very difficult thing to do. It really is. Um, but uh, Brother Kyle was, uh, was through the power of our Lord more than, uh, than up to the challenge. God blessed through him this morning in a very bold, very biblical, very precise, very challenging sermon. And I was absolutely thrilled to be in, in, the, in, in God's house this morning and able to hear it. I have been blessed today. And I might add, Brother Kyle, what seems so strange to me is that it was right in line with what I'm saying tonight. And we have not consulted at all, have we? I mean, there's no collusion to steal a popular term from politics. There's a lot of delusion, but there's no collusion. Um, and I'll also add that uh, we have been on kind of a, a funny schedule recently, and that, that uh, um, I'll be back in the pulpit next Sunday morning for Mother's Day and for all foreseeable ones after that. If that troubled you somewhat, I don't know why it would. If it did, then... Uh, then understand that I'm back in the pulpit next Sunday morning. Okay, for everybody that that is uh, scared of a little change every once in a while, there you go. Okay, change is over, back to normal. All right, good. Now let's talk about what God has sent me here to talk about tonight. Um, in the crisis, 
one of the great pamphlets of the American Revolution. Right, Brother Kyle? I love stealing from Brother Kyle and Brother Brian's uh, uh, field of study, and it's so much fun to do that. Um, These are the times that try men's souls, Payne wrote. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of the country, but he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered, yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. Those Payne's words, not my words, um, for a different context, but in many ways the same. Now, as we look at our focal passage, I want to remind you historically for just a moment. Within our focal passage, this is set during that time of the great um, Jewish civil war between the followers of Saul and the followers of David who had been anointed by Samuel as the rightful king of Israel. Saul had been rejected for his sin and his incompetence and David embraced by God. But there still took, it still took warfare to decide this. And fortunately within the pages of history we realize that warfare is often needed to decide Issues of faithfulness. It should not be so, but it is so. Now look, around us today, a war rages. Whether we will recognize it and react accordingly or not, we stand on the brink of not a hot civil war. I'm not one of those agitators who would declare that to be so that is not so. What we have is a cultural cold war, essentially. A war fought in situations and in ways that we do not expect. And for that reason, it tends to sneak up on us. Take advantage of us in in things we do not know. But it also worms its way in to the church and into families. Now, I'm going to define it later, but I'll reveal it today. It is a warfare, ultimately, of a Christian faith between what is called liberal or progressive Christianity, which does not exist, and between what is true and orthodox Christianity. Now, I'll be first to tell you, there is no such thing as liberal Christianity. There's only one kind. It's like there's only one gospel. The things that we speak of, to be quite blunt with you, just are not negotiable. The Bible does not give us the authority to do that. We can either choose to embrace the Bible and its blessings, or ignore or reject the Bible and incur its wrath. It's all we can do today. So there's the... There are the fault lines on, on, uh, and, and the sides on which we are called upon to stand. The moral and ethical direction of an entire generation hangs in the balance. Talk about big issues. Issues like life, like definitions, like moralities. These things that are huge and important, we speak of those things today. Our fate hangs in the balance. The battlefield of that great war is the home and the church, not the Senate floor. There's nothing a politician can do to help you. There's nothing they've ever done to help you in the past, and there's nothing they're going to do to help you now. So reject that notion. It has to start here. It has to start with us. It start in our homes and the way we raise our children. We want a different nation? Raise different children. You'll have a different nation. And I might add, raise a bunch of them. 
You know, as, as Albert Moeller said, the one problem with liberalism is they don't tend to have a lot of little liberals to believe the way they do. But we on the right end of matters tend to have a lot, Brother Kyle. And if we're not having them, we're adopting them and teaching them God's ways. Praise God for that. We're all combatants. And we must choose a side or be pummeled into extinction. Now, if there's one thing the warfare has taught us, those people who are not combatants suffer more than the combatants do. There's no neutral place where you can just stay out of it. I just don't want to take a side in this. You're lying to yourself. You better take a side. You better take a side. I fear that the church of this century has abdicated its authority and donated its spine for fear of causing offense. That's who we are. We have become a people who become so offense-averse that we're scared to say the truth. Somebody might get their feelings hurt. I'll just tell you this about, about lost Tony. The truth always hurt his feelings. That's what the truth does. The truth tells you you're wrong. The truth tells you, Brother Chris, you have to change, doesn't it? And he doesn't care if you don't like it. The truth doesn't sit in the corner and weep because you are upset. Either we agree or we perish. Admittedly, I have no great love of offense. I believe that the church often causes hard feelings unnecessarily, regrettably, and pridefully. I'll be the first to tell you that I think we have opportunity to boldly state the truth. And the more often than not, we're causing offense for reasons despite that. Just because we think we ought to be able to do what we want to do. As my former pastor you say, amen or oh me. However, the blood of Christ shed on Calvary calls to the hearts of men and women to lovingly and powerfully choose a side today. Echoing the confrontation of Elijah to the Israelites at Mount Carmel when he said in 1 Kings 8.21, And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And the people did not answer Him a word. I'm afraid for most of the church, we are not answering. To not take a side is to take a side. To not choose is to have your choice made for you. No one ever told us we could believe what we believe and it would never offend anyone. No one ever told us that. The future of the unborn child in his or her mother's womb, the future of our children and families, the future of our livelihood and our autonomy in the gospel message is at stake in this nation. And we must learn to fight the battle in the name of Christ. With His blessings and in His fashion, or the church in this nation will perish. I'm talking about becoming a very warlike people, but not fighting the way the fight is fought right now. I had some discussions with some of our young women uh, just in the last couple of days and just proposing an alternative to how we, we go to the abortion clinic and how we make uh, people know that it's wrong. And, and one of the things that I've, I've been so troubled about was the fact that, that many of the people on my side in this issue seem the most unhinged. And admittedly, when you let it sink into your brain that across that fence... They are tearing little babies into pieces. 
it ought to drive you crazy. If it doesn't, you need to examine your heart. If you can go home and rest and it not bother you that in the capital of your state, 2,500 babies will be murdered every single year, not two or five or 25, but 2,500 are murdered, if that doesn't offend you deeply, I would challenge you to read your scripture. Because I believe God weeps over it. But as much as I feel their passion and have compassion for them, I understand that I felt like there was a better, more Christ-like way to go and wage the battle. How would Jesus fight this battle? In earthly form, embracing earthly limitations, how would Jesus fight this battle? That's what I'm talking about. How do we go forth and fight it with His heart, with His mind, in the way He would do it? It's going to take something different than we're probably willing to do. John Stott described our personal ammunition as indignation and compassion form a powerful combination. They are indispensable to division and therefore to leadership. Now I seize on that first word. That word indignation means what? Anger. Yes. God gave you anger and it is not wrong to be angry when terrible things are happening. It is not wrong to be angry because babies are being butchered. It is right to be angry. There is no logical response to that but anger. It is wrong to not be angry when the gospel is not being preached. It is wrong to not be angry when the definitions that define our society are being attacked. It's wrong to not be angry. And the nation's important, but it's always joined with compassion. With compassion. Personally, this quote from a great man of God, John Stott, allows me to defend a characteristic of my ministry. I am angry all the time. I've been called angry a lot. Why are you so angry? Look around. Duh. Turn the TV on. Look out your window. If you're not angry, you are delusional. There's every reason in the world to be angry. I am very angry. I'm angry that people are dying and going to hell. That makes me furious. And my compassion leads me to preach the unadulterated gospel. Not to hide anything. And not to sell it either. Do you understand? So many men that inhabit pulpits are selling the gospel. I can proudly say here, we don't sell it for anything. I fear that our pride would lead us to preach it to empty rooms. To echo in empty chambers. I'm angry that I don't live like Jesus is coming soon. I'm mad at me. And I have no passion or compassion for my laziness. I'm angry that my family fails. But I understand their struggles. I insist on the truth and I pray for them. I'll include you. I'm angry. When the church fails. But I will forsake all to lead them to do God's will. I'm angry when babies are murdered in the womb and I gather with my brothers and sisters to beg God to end the slaughter by winning the hearts of expectant mothers. 
I'm angry when our nation spits in the face of the supreme God and laughs at His power and I attack their obstinance with the truth from this very pulpit. You are absolutely right. I am angry like Paul in Athens in Acts 17, 16, where the Scriptures say, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. That's right. I'm provoked and I'm angry. The spirit of the man of God was provoked within him. All that he needed was eyes that see and ears that hear to have to the ears to have to have the inclination within his heart to do something about the darkness around him. It's one of the great movement of the spirit in Paul. Paul looked. God didn't move upon his heart to make him do some wild thing. Paul opened his eyes. The Apostle Paul did not need a special invitation from the Lord or a great movement of the Holy Spirit in his heart to lash out at the culture around him with the truth. He just couldn't be willfully blind or conveniently deaf. I think they're settled upon the church of the 21st century willful blindness and convenient deafness. We just simply stick our heads in the sand and hope things will get better. I'm here to tell you as a father, I'm here to tell you as a pastor, I'm here to tell you as your friend, as your brother, I have never seen a situation where things get better in my family or in yours, where they just get better by themselves, do they? They just don't. Therefore, we must have the first truth which must be applied uh, from this verse. One, God's people must have an emotional and intellectual response to the world which provides a willingness to do something about the problem. We've got to have open eyes and open ears and we've got to see and be willing to do something. Standing here on sinking sands, pretending that things will get better is not an answer to the problem. It never has been and never will be. The psalmist David wrote in Psalm 16 verse 4, a response to the spiritual conditions in Israel when he said, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. As a leader, David was one who was willing to stand firm on the truth of God and insist that the nation would follow him. Look, I see parallels in the time period of 1 Chronicles 12 from which your focal passage comes and the United States of the 21st century. Let me share those parallels. First, the nation was embroiled in a civil war which would determine the direction of the country. Ours is theological, not political. This is not a, I hope the Republicans win. Or I hope that I don't care about R or D. I'll be honest with you, both R and D are going to burn one of these days. I can't think of one R or one D that ever did anything for anybody. That ever represented the interests of anyone but themselves and their own pocketbook. They're all crooks. Every single one. We're talking about the people of God and the people who are not. That's what we're talking about. That's the distinction today. The distinction between the two factions warring to lead the people was not one of ethnicity or family background or politics, but of biblical truth, integrity, and commitment to the Lord. Now, I'll explain this difference. It's not in your paper, you just listen, okay? The difference is between Christianity and liberalism. Anthony Coleman, a liberal blogger and author, 
he ident- very, very fairly, I might add, I- identifies the differences between liberals and real Christians, orthodox Christians. He said this, a conservative is more likely to believe, tell me if this is you, that the doctrines of the church are literal and true. Yes. The Bible is literally the Word of God in a way that is unique among religious literature. Yes. Three, their tradition, or perhaps Christianity as a whole, is the only valid faith and path to salvation. Yes, to all three. That's pretty much who we are as a people. We believe in our doctrine. We believe in the source of our doctrine as the inspired Word of God without any mixture of error whatsoever. And that the Bible is the Bible and nothing else is. No ancient writing of any other group is valid. Only the Bible. And we believe that through the Gospel, men and women find salvation and only through the Gospel. Now, liberals believe this. A liberal is more likely to believe that the doctrines of the church may have to be reinterpreted, reinterpreted figuratively or symbolically, and may not literally may not be literally true. That's what they believe. The Bible is a collection of books that records Hebrew and Christian religious thought about God, but is not literally the inspired word of God. And finally, their tradition is one. Appropriate response to the divine, but other religious paths are also valid. The first part is us. It's who we are. And the second part terrifies me. And it's rightly stated by a liberal Christian. I can't imagine believing that. I can't imagine my faith being a giant question mark. But that's exactly what it is. There's the difference. There, there's the battle line, the fault line. One faction would promote third, one faction would promote theological liberalism characterized by Saul's offering of sacrifices in contradiction to the law and David's orthodoxy represented by his willingness to restore the Levitical law to lead the nation to worship and his role as a writer of Psalms. For the ancient Israelites, that was their battle. Saul was the theological liberal. Saul did everything the king wasn't supposed to do and nothing the king was supposed to do. Nothing the book of Deuteronomy had instructed the king to do. Did Saul do and he did everything he wasn't supposed to. David fought to restore that balance. Men and women were being asked to choose sides and in making their choice, risk their lives and their livelihoods. Every single person, every man and his family that lined up with David in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 22, took their lives and the lives of their family in their own hands. If their side loses, they lose. If their side loses, they lose land, they lose livelihood. We stand on the precipice of exactly the same decision. There will come a day when it will not be financially stable to believe what we believe. To believe what we believe means you're not going to be able, teacher, to teach at that school. You're not going to be able to. You're not going to be able to work in all kinds of industries simply because you believe what you believe and what you believe is hate. Not truth. Not life-changing, life-saving. But hate speech. 
Finally, the eternal God was not neutral in this affair, but clearly on the side of biblical truth and orthodoxy, having rejected one and embraced the other. God isn't neutral. God is on your side. Fight the battle as if He is. Do not apologize for what you did not write. Do not apologize for what He demands that we declare. Do so in the way Christ would do it, but never apologize for standing up for life. Never apologize for standing up for marriage. Never apologize for standing up for truth. Never apologize. You're never going to be called upon by me to apologize for what is blatantly true in the Scriptures. Ever. Two, God's people must understand the situation based on biblical principles and not just their emotional makeup. There's the the choice. As I've said many times for 12 years now, Everything is wrong till your kid does it. It's easy to take a stand until your kid does it. Then you want to waver. You want to redefine. Don't redefine. You are called upon not just to love the world emotionally, but to love the world truthfully and to judge rightly. It's not enough to have a heart full for the world. You've got to have a heart that wants to bring truth to the world. The priesthood mystic, Henri J.M. Nuon, in his book, In the Name of Jesus, Reflections on Christian Leadership, wrote, I love this quote, I have to share it with you. The Christian leader of the future is called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerable self. That's the way Jesus came to reveal God's love. The great message that we have to carry as ministers of God's Word and followers of Jesus is that God loves us not because of what we do or accomplish, because God has created and redeemed us in love and has chosen us to proclaim that love as the true source of all human life. Look, my first desire in using this quote is not to affirm its theological stance. I don't want to do that. The, the theology of this is, is not as bad as I see sometimes, to be honest with you. But there's a point the man makes that I want to seize to. It's, I say it's closer to orthodoxy than most of the time. But the fact that our leadership, the dependence of others upon us, and our ability to prepare and protect the members of our family and the church does not rest on our strength, but finds its foundation in the intersection of our weakness and our reliance upon God. If this is not a call to these great, strong bastions of the faith. This is a call to those quivering lumps of jelly in the pew, which includes me. This is a call to every spine that in most of its life has been, has been a wet noodle. God wants you in your weakness. Do not wait till you're strong and convinced to stand for what is right. Because men and women on their deathbed do not stand for what is right. Stand while you have strength. While there is breath in your lungs, stand. (coughs) God's response to Paul's distress is our foundational statement on leadership and sacrifice. When Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12.9, he said, To me my grace is sufficient for you. For my powers made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The key to unlocking the power of Christ in any great struggle, personal or otherwise, is in embracing weakness and not the false bravado of inflated manhood. It's not in that at all. Womanhood 
are personal attributes. Christian integrity is surrender to God's will no matter the personal cost. Three, final point. The strength needed to win any battle is from Christ Jesus in us and not from our natural abilities. We're all gifted for the battle uniquely, but we will succeed. Excuse me, but it is not by way of our gifts that we will succeed, but in our surrender to the sufficiency of God. From our focal passage, we finally learn the possibilities of the people of Christ through their submission to His will. Think back. All they did was day by day answer the call. And God made them into an army. It's not some great movement, Joseph, that feels like a movement. It's the fact that individual people opened their eyes, saw the situation, and responded as men of faith and women of faith are expected to respond. I'm going to tell you, it's not enough to, and I, I use abortion this because it's the most obvious, and for my, my family and my heart, the most egregious offense. It's not enough to think, my goodness, they're murdering babies in Jackson, and shake your head and feel bad. It ought to stir in us a desire to do something. I tell you this much, if they were your babies, you'd do something, wouldn't you? If they were taking your children, you'd do something. Let somebody do them wrong at school and we'll throw the biggest fit ever. And somebody's being murdered. God's children are being murdered in our capital. And, we'll won't, and we won't choke on a bite. Not one. It's not enough to know something bad is happening. It's enough to know something bad is happening and feel a, an urgency to do something about it. That's what God is stirring in our hearts today. It's not enough to say my community is dying and going to hell, but it's a desire to do something about it. The truth of the Gospel and the instructions of the Scriptures raise the army of the church and defeat the most daunting enemies. As the Savior teaches us in Matthew verse 16, verse 18, He says, I tell you, you are Peter on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Remember, we're those standing in the place of Cephas. We're mindless stones that compose the church, which is built upon the rock of the eternal Son of God. Why does this church prevail? Because I'm good or you're good or we're faithful. No, this church prevails because it's built on Jesus. The stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. He is our chief cornerstone. As we apply this single verse within its context, we begin by understanding how the climate in Israel during the reign of Saul was a parallel to our own day. The wickedness of the time in Canaan, surrounded by enemies, physical and spiritual, it's a corollary connecting the past with our present. We are surrounded by wickedness, folks. And we have to see it that way. We can't be enticed by it. 
We can't play with it. We can't go to it and think it's okay. I go there, it doesn't matter. Because I don't do this. No. There's no biblical support for that. If we're to be a set-apart people, it means being a set-apart people. We're either set-apart or we're polluted. We're either prepared for sacrifice or we're unholy. Paul describes in... In Ephesians 5.16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. There's an acknowledgement within us today that the days in which we live are evil. And that we redeem the time today. Why? Because we will not commit the sin of ignoring time. None of us in this room are as young as we were yesterday, right? And for many of us in this room, we've lived more than half of our lives. We count our future not in decades, but in years. What are we waiting for? Will we decide upon our deathbeds to do more when it's too late? And for the young people, do not think for a second that you will not be us. You will snap your fingers and decades will roll away. Decades. My challenge to you is don't waste a minute. Don't look back on your 20s or your 30s or your 40s and wish you'd done something with them. <clears throat> Consequently, theologically, we also must come to the conclusion that conditions in our nation are not apart from our individual or familial circumstances, but are an outward reflection of the internal struggles which are endemic to our homes. And when I say that to say this, I want everyone to say, especially young parents right now. I never thought the problems would get in my family. But no matter how hard we tried, they did. No matter how hard we tried, they got us anyway. You cannot sanitize them. You can prepare them. Please prepare them. Do not act as if it's not going to be you, because it will be. If we do not take these threats seriously, our ignorance or our abject stupidity will hasten the demise of our families. Those that we profess value above all others and the churches for which we are responsible. If we don't think these monsters can steal both our own children and the children of this church, we are lying to ourselves and we are practicing leadership malpractice. Our job is to protect the sheep from the wolves. As I've said many times, you don't reason with wolves, do you? Brother Brian, what do you do with a wolf? You kill him. You don't have pity on wolves. Leadership malpractice is characterized by a stubborn refusal to accept the legitimate state and condition of that which is to be led, be it family or church. We won't bury our heads in the sand. I've done that in my life and I will never do it again. We will act as Christ would act, with passion and love 
but with determination. The duty we embrace today as God's called is to lead by example. To see with open eyes and clear vision and to do what it takes to win the battle in surrender and in compassion. Folks, we'll never be the light in the darkness of this church until these families in this room are completely surrendered. We'll never be that. We can stress over who's here and who's not here. We can stress over attendance and money and all those things. And all those things are one problem and one problem alone. The surrender of our hearts. As Leonard Ravenhill said, you do not have to advertise a fire. When the passion of Jesus blazes in our hearts, you won't be able to, fit, to, to get everyone in this room. That's just the truth. That is a function of our surrender and our compassion. Will you do what it takes today and answer the call? Will you today? Let's pray. Father God, I love and adore you and I thank you, Father, for the opportunity to come and to preach your word. And I pray, Father God, that I've done it rightly. I've done it appropriately, Father God. And I pray, God, that I haven't left anything out. God, I, I have confidence in what you called me to come and deliver, Father God. And at the same time, Father, I know that I have corrupted it by my weakness, Father God, and, my, and all my, my, my shortcomings. But I pray, Father God, that you will, uh, you will, Father God, organize what is disorganized within me. And that what your people heard, Father God, was exactly what you intended for them to hear. I pray, Father God, that you took hold of my conscience and of my tongue, Father God. That you kept it back from, from statements of, of arrogance, Father God, and, and ignorance. And that you, Father God, led me to do exactly what you wanted me to do. Now I pray for this church, Father God. Something's got to burn within us, Father, that's not there. I don't want anything fake, Father God. I don't want some cultural nonsense, Father God. I want to see a blazing inferno in God's people that begins in me and my family, Father God, and extends to each and every one of us, Father. So that we're no longer caught up, God, in trivialities, Father. We're no longer caught up in the inconsequential nonsense that churches will spend their, that will waste their lives worrying about, Father God. But we start to really care, God, about who's hearing the gospel, who's coming to Christ, Father God. That we start to care, God, about the, the mission field more than we've ever cared about it before, cared about evangelism and, and life and all the issues we have to care about, Father God. I pray for that now. Start that forest fire within us, Father God. That, that unchecked blaze, Father, that shows the world exactly how glorious you are and how you'll take the tiniest of churches, Father God, and start the greatest of revolutions. Please, God, I pray for that now. I pray, God, that you do it, God. Please, show the world your greatness, Father God. And use our meekness to do it, Father. We thank you. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.